In this episode of 92i Talks, Alex Wagner, journalist and author of the gripping new book, Future Face, is joined by National Book Award winner ta Coates for a profound discussion on the American experience of race, immigration, exile, and identity. The conversation was recorded on April 26, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. How's it going? It's going well, my friend. Thank you for doing this. Well, it's uh, payback. Uh, <laughs> but I mean that in the best sense. Yeah, okay. Retribution? Alex, no, no, it's not retribution. Alex uh, interviewed me when I was on book tour a few months ago, and I was, you know, uh, very grateful to have her there. And I look forward to paying back the favor tonight in all senses. Um, Alex, uh, you uh, have a grandmother and a mother who came to this country from Burma. Yeah. Um, and a father who has ancestry in Luxembourg, but not in Liechtenstein, right? Liechtenstein, Liechtenstein yeah, yeah. Another small, tiny yes. country that nobody can place on yes, a map. but it's Luxembourg. Yeah, Luxembourg. Um, can you talk about how, and these are like, you know, the dominant poles of, of, of your identity as you yeah. describe it in, in the book. Can you talk about how you saw yourself um, as a young person, as a child? Yeah. So I grew up, as you mentioned, the only child of a Burmese immigrant and a white American father. And I never thought, I didn't have a, a racial identity that I could speak of when I was little. I just kind of thought of myself as generically American. I watched Murder, She Wrote, and I liked Garfield, and I ate Chips Ahoy, and like, that was my life, right? And then when I was 12, I was at this diner with my dad. And my dad went up and went used the restroom, and the line cook turned and looked at me, and he said, are you adopted? And it was the first time in my life that I realized the way I thought of myself was not how everybody else saw me. And that I thought I was generically American, and of course I was the daughter of this white guy, because he was my father, and that's all I had ever conceived. How but old were you? I was 12. And, and I realized that for some people, I was not generically American. There was no way I could be the natural-born daughter of a white American, and somehow I was an outsider. I had to have come from some other place. And then when I was in high school, Time Magazine in 1993 had this cover showcasing a picture of the future face of America. And it was this racially composite image of this kind of vaguely brown person, this woman. And I thought, that's me. I am the future face. It's where the book title comes from. And I thought, that's my identity. I am an avatar from the future sent to show America what you will look like in 20 years hence, right? And so like for my late which teens- Which is almost right now. Well, which is almost right now. Little, yeah. Turns out I was wrong. I am not the face of America. It looks still pretty white. Um, and and I, I sort of wore that mixed race, nebulous identity proudly, right? Like I would wear like one feather earring and people would say, are you, you know, like, what's your blood? Are you, are you Cherokee? You know, like, and I sort of like relished that. Or people would say, I'd say, I'm Egyptian, I'm Coptic Egyptian, or I'm Hawaiian, you know, and like, those were obviously all lies, but, and it was all, <laughs> as far as I know, um, it was all, that's all evidence of like how lightly I wore mm. identity, mm. right? And it was also fraudulent, totally fraudulent. Mm. And as I have gotten older, and especially once I hit my 30s, I began to crave something that was more meaningful and that would ground me more firmly in, in a narrative mm. about identity and that I, could, I wanted to find a community. I wanted to know what it meant to be Burmese and I wanted to know what my Luxemburger roots were. And that was kind of this jumping off point for, the, for this book. You know, there is this idea in, in, in America, and I, I think in, in liberal America too, that you know, if um, everybody starts having sex with everybody, you know, we'll get to future face. Yeah. All our problems are. Racism. I mean, everybody should have sex with everybody anyway. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, not I'm certainly not objecting to everybody yeah. having sex with everybody. I would never object to that. Um, I, 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 I don't know that it's the strongest anti-racist measure right. um, that, that, that I found. Uh, right. Right. Um, <laughs> But there is this kind of exotification, exotification. Uh, yeah, exotification. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. You speak English better than me. Um, you know, of, of, of this idea. I mean, even to the point of, you know, you know, I've definitely, maybe this, you know, is part of being African American. Mixed race people look better. They're more attractive. That, that, that sort of thing. Before you get, got to the point where you said you were craving, you know, something deeper. How did you feel about that? I mean, I, I'm very interested, for instance, in how men approached you. You know. I mean, 
you're saying it's I know my mixed think. race heritage and not my sparkling personality. Um, I, I, you know, I think there is there is an exotification, right? We were talking about Kanye, right? right. Earlier, Kanye, right. the artist we all used to love until two right. days ago, right. and. Or was it yesterday? It's been so long. Those yeah, tweets know. have been so seared. Well, it was like my... 80 of them in yeah. one day. So. But that Kanye used to talk about like preferring mixed race right, right. video models, right. right? And there is a sort of like sexualization of mixed race heritage that, I mean, I, I don't know that I've done enough thinking to be able to answer why that is. I think that I felt, at Especially, I mean, and thanks to you to some degree, I felt guilty that I would have imagined I could have been part of a racial history that was free of blood or plunder, mm. right? Like, mm. I, it's crazy to me now that I was just kind of like, oh, I'm whatever, it doesn't matter, mm. like, I'm the future. No, no racial identity is free of blood or plunder. I mean, as I learned mm -hmm. in researching the twin poles of my ancestry, my father would say, oh, you know, we were from this tiny town in Iowa and there were no people of color mm -hmm. except for the lone black dry cleaner, mm -hmm. which is an alarm bell should ring when a white person is like, there were no people of color and it was totally cool. And like, we didn't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. I began to sort of research, like how could it, why is Iowa so white? Mm -hmm. And part of the reason there were no people of color in my dad's town is because the people of color who once owned the land mm -hmm. had been driven off of it and killed off and died from diseases mm -hmm. basically foisted upon them. Mm -hmm. But never in our family history had we ever imagined that the Wagners of Lansing, Iowa, who arrived just a handful of years after the Winnebago tribe was driven off the land, never had we conceived of the fact that those two histories dovetailed. Mm -hmm. And never had we ever even thought that we actually were given something mm -hmm. unfairly mm -hmm. and that that was part of the reason we were able to grow things off the land and grow big and strong and become the Wagners of Lansing, mm -hmm. Iowa. Mm -hmm. We had never sensed, we had never accounted for the debt. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that has been, I mean, to go back to the mixed race thing, I had never thought of the debt. Mm -hmm. On any side of my, I mean, and my Burmese side has plenty of questionable histories to it too. But the, the truth is that you can't just be nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're always a part of something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that something is really messy. I mean, one, one of the interesting things for me, um, and, and I want to get to, to your search and how that search began, but uh, one of the things is even our terminology, um, mixed race has always been very, very interesting to me. I believe the average, so uh, there's a point towards the end where Alice goes and, you know, spoiler alert, uh, does. <laughs> you spoil away. <laughs> right, spoil away. You know, she does, you know, uh, basically, you know, these DNA tests. Yes. Um, so I, I did the same thing. Uh, you did. I did. And it, like, you know, different things come back from different places. You know, one was like, you know, he's, see, when you're black, how much you're white is what matters, right? Like, that's, you know. <laughs> And we are in this post-black power era where it's like as little as possible as I can get. <laughs> so one came back 15, the other came back 25. I go with 15. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you, you think about that, and it's like, I mean, if I'm being serious, I mean, you're talking about, like, m my grandmother or my mother's grandmother. Yes. And this is basically true of the African-American population in this country. They are a Creole mixed-race Population, and we've always known that because we had to go to family reunions, and it was pretty obvious right. to us. And yet we draw these lines as though there's a there's a you know a pure black, a pure white, a pure. Well, I think for blackness, and you can speak to this more than I can. There is no sense of that we don't allow a nuanced picture of black life and black blood in America, right? right? We we Barack Obama is a mixed race person, right? But for all intents and purposes, he's our first black president. Right. We never talked about the fact that he's half white. We right. never acknowledged that he has mixed heritage in the same way that we don't, I mean, black people are either black or they're not black, but right. they're never, right. we never conceive of black people as in fact mixed race right. Americans. Well, can I, I, I just want to push you on a little bit of this though, just to, and I promise we're going to get to your search. This is the, I mean, it's We can talk about Dean. I'm happy to talk about <laughs> No, no, no. I, I, this part is like really interesting to me. Um, if there is no pure black in America, how do we refer to something as mixed race if the thing that we're saying was mixed in is in fact mixed? Wait, what? <laughs> so, if you have a black parent, white parent in this country, yes. right, biracial, I'm a mixed race, right? Right. 
But if your black parent was never pure if to begin If you're already with, mixed to yes, begin with. Yes, if they're mixed. Then to you're be- like double mixed. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think that there's a huge question. Like in Brazil, they've like. That's exactly right. Right. It's right. like right. it's so bucketed as to be. I mean, there's you can overcorrect right. for this. Right. Right. And we get back to this idea of is it better for us to have an intensely detailed classification mm-hmm. system for race? Mm-hmm. Or is mm-hmm. it better to just be like, we're brown? Right. Because right. where I got to in the book was the sense that like and I talked to a lot of evolutionary genealogists and the whole thing with ancestry testing is it divides us up into these Mm -hmm. fractional racial percentages Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is like with our history of like racial percentages in America that makes me uneasy to begin with Mm -hmm. but it also makes me uneasy as I talked to these biologists and evolutionary specialists they said you know the things we are so alike. First of all, the idea, the ancestry tests reaffirm the idea that race is somehow rooted in science. Mm-hmm. And that's really problematic. Mm-hmm. And it reinforces the fact that we are racially different from one another, mm-hmm. when in fact, we're really similar. And if you look at Homo homo sapiens, mm-hmm. like our destiny is to further mix. Mm-hmm. And through globalization and love and romance and everybody having sex with each other, like that is actually the destination of our species. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that we should gloss over the real profound chasms that separate races in America today and acknowledge those and also our troubled racial history. But there is a truth to the fact that like, you may want to build border walls and insulate yourself and your bloodline from change and mixing. There's no insurance policy you can take out against that. We are destined for change. We are destined to be brown. Mixed, 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 mixed. So the future face thing is real. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to be alive for it. Right, but like, it, it, I mean, as a species, that is, in fact, where we're going. We Americans aren't going to be Americans for the rest of our lives. Look at your son's daughter's son's son's daughter's, you know, right. genetic map and, you know, whatever, how many years that is. And right. it's going to light up a completely different part of the world. Right. Right, you're so optimistic. Um, <laughs> That's why we're having this conversation. Well, but I do. In my mind, in 500 years, there'll still be ghettos. Yeah. Here. Well, no, I'm not saying that we're all gonna we're gonna live a classless society, but right. I just think right. that we will mix more. Right. Right. Um, so you begin this, this search, and in the book, it begins with your dad, and zigzags back to your mom, and then comes back to your dad. Yeah. So I, I, w- I want to go to your 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 mom's side because what's interesting is you grew up in a relatively, can I say, leftist liberal. Yeah. Household. Um, it's interesting to me that there was still, as you say, that, that kind of blind spot about race, but we'll, we'll leave that for just a second. Um, you envisioned your, uh, your mom's side of the family as a group of people who opposed uh, the military junta in Burma, people who are on the right side of justice, the right side of fight. What did you find when you did your research and what did that mean to you? So I had been told these stories about Burma that were like these rose-tinted, incredibly nostalgic recollections of frangipani blossoms and the smell of the ground after the monsoon rains and bananas at tea time. And I mean, I grew up with these stories and they were like poetry and I just accepted them because who didn't want to be from like Brigadoon? I mean, it was like this fake play. I don't actually know Brigadoon. I don't know what happens in that musical, but I, I feel like it's like a nice place to be Brigadoon. And that's what Burma was. It was like a, an imaginary mythical place. And I never questioned it until I sort of thought, well, wait a second, if Burma was so fucking great. Why'd we leave? <laughs> and as I began sort of asking my grandmother for more details about life it, back in Burma, it became clear that these kind of, she would talk about people in a way and certain ethnic uh, sub, sub populations in Burma in like fairly dismissive, if not outright racist terms. Mm-hmm. She would call Indians, Indians Kalas. And that is, an, is a bigoted racist term. The translation is hard, but it's basically like calling someone a house Negro, a black man, a caste man. And I had never thought of that as racism. Mm-hmm. Cut to today, where you're seeing the ethnic cleansing, the genocide mm-hmm. of a Muslim majority that has roots back in Bangladesh and India. Mm-hmm. And the Burmese population is looking the other way as their military government systematically rapes, kills, and forces out hundreds of thousands of its own citizens by virtue of the fact that they are Indian Muslims. They're outsiders that Mm -hmm. don't belong. And I realized my family held some of these same bigoted beliefs. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandmother wasn't out there engaging in ethnic cleansing, but she is and was 
part of the Bama nationalists who believe their race to be superior mm -hmm. and who mentally have justified the marginalization at best and the genocide at worst of other ethnic tribes. Mm -hmm. That was- Do they think of themselves as a race? Like is that, I, who, I know the, it's The Bama, the yes, Burmese? Yes, yeah, yes, they, like we are genetically. Yeah. I mean, Burma is a polyglot nation mm -hmm. um, and there is absolutely a racial hierarchy. The reason Burma is called Burma is because the British named it so for the Bama people. Mm -hmm. They were always the most privileged, they were light-skinned, mm -hmm. they were the most economically enfranchised, mm -hmm. and the rest of Burma's 135 ethnic groups were hill people, the Shan, the Chin, the Kachin. They were from different parts of Burma. They were not as um, empowered mm -hmm. socially and economically, and the poor Rohingya were not even counted as part of the Burmese population. They've always been seen as outsiders, despite the fact that they've been in Burma as early as 7 AD. Mm -hmm. um, but what we see now is the harvest of seeds that were sown decades and generations ago. Mm -hmm. And in fact, by some of the members of my own family. I mean, they believed this bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I had never, I mean, I think when we, especially with brown immigrants, right? there is a sense that the old world is the old world and we arrived here and we became Americans and then we were sort of like virtuous, hardworking immigrants. Mm -hmm. and my mom and I talk about this a lot, but that's a fallacy. We left mm -hmm. behind a lot of bad things and we were implicated in bad things that have since transpired in some of those countries. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was really important to have a reconciliation of that history, um, both for my own purposes, but also to better understand what was happening or what is happening mm -hmm. in Burma today. Can you talk some about uh, the roots of some of that prejudice within the context of, of, of the colonialist struggle, which, which you go into in the book with the British? I, I, this yeah. is going somewhere, I mean, I promise. Part of the reason there's so much tension with the Indians and the British, for example, is because the Indians helped the British as the Brit British colonized Burma. Mm -hmm. The British often gave Indians top positions in the, gov the colonial government, and, and so the Indians to some Burmese were seen as the sort of patsies of the British. Mm -hmm. On the converse, the Indians often were the laboring classes in Burma. I mean, they were the economic, they were in the economic engine room of the Burmese economy, and they were often engaged in money lending to Burmese farmers during the rice boom, but they also were tradesmen, servants, you know, rickshaw pullers. They, Rangoon, where my mom grew up, was an Indian city. I mean, it was actually like majority Indian, but I had never known that. I had no idea that there was any, any sort of relationship like that between the Burmese and the Indians, and nor did I have any sense that as my grandmother was going to school in Rangoon, there were riots mm -hmm. in Rangoon where hundreds of Indians were killed mm -hmm because of economic tensions. Mm -hmm. You look at what, what happened there, and the patterns are nauseating when you think about what's happening here, right? You have outsider, outside labor, it's darker, it's lower on the economic chain, there's been, uh, there are economic tensions that create uh, a, a kind of break between the dominant sort of lighter skin society and the darker working class. And the answer is shame and marginalization and sometimes violence. I mean, nationalism is not unique to America. Xenophobia is not unique to America. I just had no idea it was in my Burmese backyard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, and then you go over to your father's side of the family. Yeah. On another search that takes you, I believe, deep into the Franco-Prussian War, in fact. <laughs> This is the sexy part of the book. How, how did we end up in the, the details of, I mean, you know, I love European history, so it was cool to read your summarization of the Franco-Prussian yeah. Franco War. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't realize that was the moment of German unification. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Um, sorry, I'm a bit of a nerd here. No, um, that's know, an important thing, German yeah, unification. It is, I mean, like, obviously yes, it had implications later. Yes, yeah. yes it did, yes it did. Um, <laughs> Um, just a few. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you ended up there and, and tracing your dad? Let me just say one thing to all you amateur genealogists in the audience. The, one of the things that's so um, intoxicating about learning who your people were is because the great movements of history actually end up being plot twists in your own family story, mm. right? Like I had never thought of the Suez Canal. Like mm. what really, I didn't know anything about the Suez Canal. Mm. But then when I was researching my great grandfather's role in the crashing of the Burmese economy, that's like another chapter entirely, I realized the Suez, the opening of the Suez Canal made it easier to transport goods and rice from Burma up to the markets of Western Europe. If the Suez Canal hadn't been opened, a series of chain events in Burma would not have happened. Mm. 
we never think of those big movements of history, German unification, the Franco-Prussian War. That drove my great-grandfather to America. One of the things you realize is when you do genealogy or you conduct genealogy, like history no longer exists in a vacuum or a dusty book. It is, becomes part of your own life story. Mm-hmm. And that gives us, I think, a sense of grounding and also probably grandiosity, because mm-hmm. here I am talking about the Suez Canal being an important part of my family history. But it is really interesting. Yes. The reason we're talking about the Franco-Prussian War is because it appears my great-grandfather, Henry, was this patriarch, this Catholic patriarch of 13 children, and he was a stand-up member of society in Iowa until I started doing the research and realized not only maybe was he actually Jewish, but he appeared to have been like an underworld uh, sort of uh, gambler, height, like he was involved in unsavory things during the Franco-Prussian War and may have been running guns or salt or, you know, weaponry across both enemy lines and was maybe going to be hung for treason. Mm-hmm. That did not comport with the image of Mr. Stand-Up Patriarch, Roman Catholic father of 13 that I had been gifted my entire life mm-hmm. growing up. So, yeah, I ended up in the depths, the bowels of the um, National Archives in Luxembourg researching with like white linen gloves and super old mm. falling apart census mm. books, the, the true history of my family. And what was the question? No, you, I think you just answered it. I think I, I just you, answered I it. You, that's how, why how we're, in, you, yes, that's why why we're we, in the Franco-Prussian War. Yes, yeah, yes. yes. Um, there is throughout the book this thread, I don't know how else to ask this, um, there is a thread of the possibility that you have Jewish ancestry and if I may infer something, there's almost some glee about the possibility oh, yeah. um, that you might have Jewish ancestry. What's that about? That's it. You know, people keep asking me, like, like I why would that have made you like so weird? People like, are like, no, why are you been, so excited to be Jewish? Like, you I'm like, oh, would you be excited to be Jewish? I think it's awesome. Um, <laughs> why? I, I think why? truthfully, so. Too, I mean, not that it's not awesome, but I. Yeah. I, I, the, obviously, the question why never occurred to me. It's never why occurred to me that I might Jewish? be Jewish, so I've never had that. Um, maybe you <laughs> are. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I wanted to be Jewish. I wanted to be Jewish for a number of reasons. One is oh, the wow. search for community and tribe, right? Mm. To be Jewish is to be part of the old, one of the oldest tribes on earth. Mm. And I think so many of my Jewish friends have such a strong connection to their Jewish ancestry. It is grounded them and given a pl- them a place in a series of rituals that always seemed like, I don't know, I, cov- I, I wanted something like that. Mm. I wanted to feel like I was part of, I mean, to forget forgive the pun, but like a tribe of some sort and the tribe of Israelites seemed like a great tribe to start with. Mm-hmm. And I knew, it's a 92nd Street Y. Um, I, I also think that I wanted to destroy my family narrative in some way, if I'm being really brutally honest. I think I was a little bit angry at how anodyne it was and how sort of, you know, thin. And I wanted to complicate it. I wanted to make it richer. I wanted to... Um, I wanted it to defy my expectations. And being Jewish, for a father who claimed such strong Irish Catholic roots, would have been a repudiation of everything that his life had been about up until that point. And it would have forced a conversation about, you know, where do we really find identity? Why have we hidden this? Mm -hmm. And were we ashamed? Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about the lone... um, Irish, I think he sold a fish, fishmonger in Iowa, right? And my dad would talk about him sort of reverentially, but also dismissively. He'd say, I said, wait, wait, don't you think it was hard being the only Jewish mm-hmm. person in a town with five churches that was so overwhelmingly Christian? And my dad said, no, 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 it was fine. No one ever said anything of it. And it was like the story that was meant to evoke the sort of largesse and the sort of evolution of his mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. But of course... In subsequent stories, it became evident that, like, of course this person was marginalized. Of course he was an outsider. Mm -hmm. And when my father and I first discussed the Jewish (coughs) story, my father was so resistant to that being a possibility Mm -hmm. that it begged further questions like, why don't you want to be Jewish? Why does this bother you? Not just because it complicates your family story, but it also places you on the outside of what you thought you were on the inside. And that really bothers you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those were all the reasons why I wanted to be Jewish. So, <laughs> I, I have questions. Um, let, let's just, spoiler alert, uh, Alex is not. Um, 
But let's say you had been. Mm-hmm. Let's say you had had some, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Jewish ancestry. You hadn't grown up with, with, with the traditions. You hadn't grown up with the culture. Well, you had the wine. You talked about the wine. You had the yes, wine. they were drinking basically Manischewitz in right. rural Iowa in right. the 1920s, and they spoke Yiddish. You tell right. me if they're not Jewish. Right. Well, I you told believe. us, though, that evidently not. Yeah, right? I mean, well, I did a lot of research you into did. this, you and did. we could not find... But if, if you don't... I mean, this is like actually a really profound question about identity for me, because, I, you know, honestly, as African-Americans, we, you know, we think about this a lot. If all you have is the genetic tie, mm-hmm. but you don't have the cultural experience, and I actually think you kind of get at this really early in your book where you talk about your dad, you know, trying to put this Catholic piece on you, but you're not really of it. You yeah. don't really... What would that mean, though? Like, if you had the answers, but you didn't have any of the experience well, at all. Well, I think that that's sort of where I come to at the end of the book, mm-hmm. which is that identity is fundamentally a construct. I thought about this a lot as we were talking about Black Panther, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, here's, and I would love to get your thoughts on mm-hmm. this. Like, here's the first movie that a lot of like black people that I know, black people in the media, black people at the Atlantic, mm-hmm. it's important because it offers an alternative identity for black people that is constructed outside the constraints of like white slavery mm-hmm. and white colonialism. Mm-hmm. And that's really powerful. And, mm-hmm. and like it dovetails with the whole Afro, Afro-futurist movement, which is a, just about envisioning a blackness mm-hmm. that exists totally independently of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And that to me seemed like a really powerful construct, right? Like, and it drove home this idea that we do to some degree make our own identities. Mm-hmm. It's complicated because we can't ignore history, mm-hmm. right? And I, I never, sug- I don't mean to suggest that in my book, mm-hmm. but I realized at the end of this that like my community, the thing that I had been searching for all along was right, like right here. Mm-hmm. We're given a very finite, undisclosed amount of time living on the crust of the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And it is up to decide, it is up to us to decide what we're gonna do with that time. We don't know how many revolutions we have around the sun. We don't know where it all ends, mm-hmm. and we don't know what comes after us. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I felt at the end of this book really freed mm-hmm. thinking about what comes after us. Mm-hmm. I knew what had come before, mm-hmm. and that informed what I wanted to do now. But I felt really strongly that it, my life is about investing in the present mm-hmm. and not being too, too preoccupied with what is coming, mm-hmm. and to some degree not holding on too much to what happened, mm-hmm. other than being honest about who my people actually are. You know, you, um, one of the, I thought one of the really insightful points you make is even as you trace your European ancestry, you trace your Asian ancestry, uh, your Burmese ancestry to be specific, what you find is the extent to which your life on both sides is influenced by forces of European colonialism and more broader, European violence. Yeah. What, what did, I mean, what, what did that mean for you? So. This goes back to the Franco-Prussian War, a chapter I know you guys are all just chomping at the bit to read more about. But basically, Europe and its territorial aggressions is really why I exist. Mm. My Join the crowd. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, the Franco-Prussian War drove my great-grandfather mm-hmm. to the U.S. because maybe he was running guns or whatever, and maybe was going to be hung for treason, but basically had to come here. And at the same, at almost the exact same time, the, the, what I call the epic dick swinging contest that was happening between you know, England and France carved up Asia. Mm-hmm. And the Franco-Prussian War, the fact that the, the Germans were fooling around in France's backyard made France more aggressive in Asia to claim some land for their own, which then made, as France was going you know, for Indochina, the British were like, well, we need to stake our claims in our part of Southeast Asia and decided to basically annex the rest of Burma. Mm. And if the, you know, there is the whole what if, but if the Brits had not seized all of Burma, if King Mindon, who my great, great, great grandmother worked in the court of, if he had, if the Burmese had kept power in the country, maybe there wouldn't have been the independence movement and then military junta that subsequently drove my Burmese family out of the country. I mean, when you begin to trace all of this, it does come back to the same European territorial aggressions. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, a pretty common theme, and I think one that may be underappreciated. Um, 
do you, can you talk about the very identity of Hispanics and Latinos without having that conversation? You obviously cannot. No, and, and by the way, you can't talk about it in terms of DNA testing either, because these mm. DNA tests mm. will tell you, for example, you're, you know, you're, you're 20% Southeast Asian. Mm. Well, what, what is Southeast Asia? Who's drawing the mm. lines around South, mm. Southeast Asia? Or mm. you're 16% Chinese. Well, what, you know, what part of China are we talking about? And it's largely the sort of Western demarcations, Western political lines, colonial boundaries. You know, what is Burmese? Mm -hmm. When was Burmese blood considered Burmese? Before the Pew of Yunnan came in? Before the British came in? At what point are we designating these bloodlines to be purely Burmese, right? And what you realize as you do more of this research into the DNA testing is that these are arbitrary lines that follow largely in the footsteps of where white people and colonists have established them. There's a, um, I mean, I know you have other conclusions about your identity. It goes past this. This is actually before you get to the science part. But that I, I think about a lot if you just allow me to read really, really quickly. Oh my goodness. No, this is great. Um, I was not Jewish. I didn't feel <laughs> Wow, just to spoil it for you guys. I didn't feel particularly Burmese, and Luxembourg might as well have been Pluto. But in all these places, all these cities, I saw glimpses of who my people might have been. Carved out from the negative space of my family history, I saw who we actually were. We were storytellers, revisionists, liars. We built our future selves on deceit and half-truth. We plastered our cracks with omissions, as well as genuine courage and smarts and will. In this act of recreation, we became Americans. And I guess there was some kind of belonging in that. Um, that's pretty good, isn't it? Um, and not just because I'm reading it, it's actually <laughs> It's better when you read it. <laughs> um, one of the things that you know, is kind of you know, a theme running through is like, it's not just a search for identity, it feels like a search for home. Yeah. And, and, a, and a particular kind of home, a noble home, a, a noble lineage, something that you, know, you can talk to, you know, brag about to your kids. Yes. And as African Americans, you know, we, we are deeply connected, you know, to that idea mm -hmm. of searching for a noble home. Why is that important? Why does it matter whether your grandfather was a, a good guy or not? I think about like uh, Ben Affleck when he was on that show <laughs> Finding Your Roots. Yes. They found out. Yes. The textbook is, of what not to do when you right. find out you have a slave owner. Exactly, in your, exactly. In your so he finds out an ancestor who he has never met and has no connection to was a slaveholder, and he wants this scrubbed. And I just, I said, why do you care? Like, this well, is I, 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 I mean, I, I wish he had taken the opposite tack. Mm -hmm. We need more white people saying, you know what? My great grandfather was a right. slave owner. Right. Like, we need to own that history. Right. Just like I felt like, you know what? We need to own the fact that we grew our peaches and dill on Winnebago land. Right. That's the American narrative. Right. Part of the problem is we have this lacuna around the, ba the bad stuff is just exfoliated. Mm -hmm. Like, no, oh, I don't want to be related to a slave owner. Guess what? Many of us are. Right. And that's part of us reconciling Many of us our who history. Slaves are. <laughs> I mean, I think the black experience is different because you like fundamentally comes from a place of marginalization and mystery and 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 censorship in a right. way, right? Like so finding those roots takes on a, a different tack, but it's almost like rec it's reconciliation, mm -hmm. right? That's why it was important to me, but what I found and I think generally the ancestor quest is almost a greedy thing as practiced in commercial ventures like right. DNA-based right. ancestry testing right. but what I found and these were these profound moments I'm like sitting in Esch Luxembourg I don't recommend it as a city if anybody's thinking of visiting nor do I recommend Luxembourg City I'm sorry but like I don't I was in I was like wandering around looking for family homes and I went to a Donner kebab shop and I'm sitting there and I'm like oh thank god like I'm just like I felt I'm like oh it's like I'm back in New York I'm in like the kebab shop they're brown people and it was like a relief right mm. And that's when I realized, like, that's who I am. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a kid from a city. Mm. I'm a kid from a place where there are people that are from all over the world that don't look like me, that probably speak other languages. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person from a country filled with immigrants. That's, that's, those are my people. And it was really freeing because I think for so much of this time and in this moment particularly, we're so tribal where we feel like it's all about like our, you know, the family tree and the sort of sacrosanct nature of the family tree. And like the family is around us mm -hmm. and it's messy mm -hmm. and it's filled with people you don't know, but maybe should get to know. Mm -hmm. But that to me is that's that was the lesson in, in that moment. 
There's, um, you, you alluded to this. Um, Ancestry.com does these commercials. And it's, I always thought I was Greek. Right, And then exactly. I took a yeah. test and I yeah. found out yeah. I was Italian. Yeah. And the person does something stero stereotypically Italian. Totally. You know what I mean? And it, there's another one where there's a, um, I guess a mixed race black yes, woman. Yes, yes, I know. It's and a 23 goes, and me one. Yes, and she goes to every place and participates in all the activities. Right, right. I, I guess, and, and maybe if you don't, <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I feel like the people who are there would actually laugh at you. Right. Like you came in there and said, yeah. came to Senegal and, you know, said, okay, I'm going to do Senegalese dance. Now. Well, I mean, it's good to be curious around the world, but this is the fundamental flaw of the, like, sort of proposition of these ancestry-based DNA. Nobody, like, yes, maybe in theory we tell ourselves, well, I'm doing it to find out I'm a citizen of the world. But really you're doing it because you want to find out your grandfather was a Viking or, I guess, great-great-grandfather. <laughs> you know what I mean? You are looking to find that special thing. And that's what you're going to tell people about when you, go to a dinner party and you say, oh, I just traced my ancestry and I found out that I'm actually a Polynesian Viking. Right. And like, everyone's going to be like, that's so crazy. How is that possible? You're not, it's not you're doing it to sort of reconcile your family history or actually even know who your people are. It's like one, and, and like the science of it is one piece of it. But fundamentally, this is, it's like, it's, it's recreation. And it's like, I feel like we haven't thought more deeply about why we're doing this. Yeah. And most people aren't happily proclaiming that they're nebulous every person. They're holding on to one specific part yeah. of who they are and dancing around with it. And by the way, I did this too. I, I got one result that said I was 14% Scandinavian and I was like, that's why I'm so tall. That's why I like like dark brown bread for breakfast, and I like IKEA furniture. All these been so easy for me to assemble. Like I'm totally Norwegian, and like lies. I was zero percent Norwegian on another test, but it was. And in the same way, they were like, "You're 16 percent Mongolian." I was like, "Genghis Khan, what?" Right, you know, right, like right, you right, just right, right. find these things and you like make little right. like magical right. stories about them. Right. And I mean, does, do, like, when you see that, like, I'm, my blood is 14% Italian and, you know, 5% Irish. Like, I, I guess what I worry about is, again, the reification of exactly. as though there is an, a, some Italian blood that confers particular attributes uh, yes. to you. Like, and this, specialness. Right, and that sets right. you apart from everything This actually else. feels very unscientific for something that's supposed to be science. Yes. And it also has implications, too, right. in terms of like how we see each other, right. Right? right? I mean, and this is where I go back to the idea that you know, they're pro they propose themselves to be things that are going to bring us together. Right. But what they do, I think, is give us an excuse to say how we're special and different from one another. Mm -hmm. And that is problematic to me. Right. Say nothing of like it, har it hearkening back to racial phrenology, like right. one drop rules. Like I just think in this moment in time, it is probably not a great idea to be breaking ourselves up into racial fractions. Right. I mean, that said, it feels like we're at a uh, particular moment you know, one of the things that I think about, um, you know, with, with the election of Donald Trump, I think one of the driving features is um, this loss of European, or, or let's just call it what it is, white yeah. hegemony in, in this country, which was part of white identity. Yes. To be white meant that the president was always white. Like that, that was, you know, part of it. And male, you know, you, 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 could, you could certainly add to that. Um, and I wonder if there's a general unease, a general search for home, you know, that, 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 that's mirrored in, in, in your book. You mean a general, the, the sense? Well, I mean, the loss of identity. Yeah. I mean, you've been dealing with this, you know, since you were a kid, right? Right. But the, I, I would argue that some of that loss, not some of it, a lot of that loss of identity is a feature of this moment, this post-1960s moment where we had, to, you know, you talk about this in the book, where, you know, it's a salad bowl now. Everybody yeah. gets in. Oh, no, you can't just, you know, we don't yeah. have this classical canon that says only these people write yeah. great books. You know, everybody's fighting it. So if you're in that hegemonic position, what's your identity now? Well, and in fact, there was a study that came out literally yesterday that said most Trump voters, right. this is controversial, but most Trump voters are, are supporting Donald Trump not because of economic disenfranchisement, but unease about the future, right. and specifically feeling like white hegemony is coming to an end, right. and that women and Muslims and minorities like future faces are right. like they're coming at them and what does that mean for their way of life? So they're doubling down with someone who is a nativist and an absolutist when it comes to race and sort of like racial identity, right. um, a white nationalist. Uh, 
Yes. I mean, I, I think that that totally informs this moment. I mean, I, it's hard for me to say, I mean, we, we, we should talk about this because like we, coming off of Barack Obama right. and going into Donald Trump, it has been, I mean, I started this book when Barack Obama was president and I finished it when Donald Trump was president. Mm -hmm. And the story I thought I was gonna tell about America and being American changed mm -hmm. radically, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, we're moving towards this brown future. No, we're not. We are, we are in some other place. And I know we differ, we differ mm -hmm. on this. I do believe that Trumpism and white nationalism, while pervasive and hard to eradicate, mm -hmm. is fundamentally on the downslope. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this moment is more the end of something than it is the beginning of something. Mm. And, I, and I know that... No, I hope you're right. <laughs> I really do. It would be... No, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not being condescending. I actually I hope you're right. Right. I actually, I mean, it would be a see. much better world if you're right. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's a good and world. And I think I'm relentlessly optimist, uh, optimistic. Mm -hmm. And I will also say, I'm coming at race from a totally different, and I say this in the book, mm -hmm. like, being a black male mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm is really different than being a mixed race mm -hmm. lady. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, you know, so I think necessarily there's gonna be a different levels of optimism right. about the future right. because right. of that. And I don't mean to gloss over that reality right. either. I, you know, this might have been in the book and I might well have missed it. Forgive me if I, if I didn't. If I did, it's for you know, the crowd's benefit anyway. <laughs> did you ever identify yourself as Asian American? This is, this is in the book a little bit. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, and I was talking to Gail, God, God bless Gail King for asking questions like this. I was like, you know, Gail, I just like Garfield and Saved by the Bell. And she's like, so you identified with white culture. And I said, wait a second, black people don't like Saved by the Bell? And she was like, Alex. <laughs> and it's true. Wait, 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 I watched Saved by the Bell. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I didn't go around talking about it, you know okay, what I mean? Okay, all right. You didn't talk about Screech. Um, there was a black girl on there, it's a turtle. <laughs> That's right, there she was. She was cute. Yeah, she was. That, that is true. That is true. Um, that's my out. <laughs> that's, your, that's your out. <laughs> um, I definitely identify, I mean, I think, I guess I just identified more with white culture, in mm. part because Burmese culture was so far away from me. Like, we, my mom and grandmother would drag me to the Burmese New Year's Festival in, mm. in Washington, outside of Washington, D.C., in the suburbs and Burmese New Year is in April. In Rangoon, it's hot as hell, and you throw water on each other in celebration for the New Year. They continued that tradition in suburban Maryland in April when it is not warm, and I'd like run around avoiding young, evil, like preteen boys trying to throw buckets of water on me, and that was like the extent of my Burmese heritage. I had no connection to it. Meanwhile, I was surrounded by white people. I, I had a lot of white friends, and as I became a professional, like. In, in, especially in journalism mm. <laughs> and media, it is dominated by white males and white culture. And to succeed in that, in that industry, and I write about this in the book, you, 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 I, your cultural identification, I mean, mine was, was white, mm -hmm. inadvertently or advertently. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until later that I even really fully, I mean, setting aside the Hapa piece, that I really got into identifying as a person of color and as a woman of color with Asian roots. We talk about this, we talk about the, in the book, there's a, there's a real question as to whether you can just exist as mi mixed race, mm. whether you don't have to actually pick a side. Mm -hmm. I don't really know the answer to that because I think in a lot of cases you do. It's mm -hmm. really hard to be both. Mm -hmm. You have to give something up. Mm -hmm. my, my, in the process. My grief is that, and I think this has happened throughout American history, that the lines will just get redrawn. Mm -hmm. That you'll say, we'll say, hey, uh, you know, in this future face future, mm -hmm. we're all brown and we all look like Alex. Um, it'll be who has green eyes and who has brown eyes. Right, there'll be some other differential there'll be that some we'll other, use. Yeah, because the fact of the matter is that racism is a lot older yeah. than race, you know, as any sort of scientific variable. I, I do want to follow up on that question, though, because one of the interesting things to me is we are at this moment where, and I don't want to overstate this, but I think we're at a relatively high moment of Asian American visibility in pop culture. Um, there was no fresh, out of the, fresh off the boat when I was yes, a kid. Yes, we have Eddie Wong to We have Eddie Wong, who blurbed this book. Who blurbed this book, who, blurbed this who book. also is our, uh, has an, a book on with our that's same right. book editor. That's yes. right, that's right. It, there, there hasn't, I, I think, this is a different moment. And I just wonder if that, 
means anything to you, if it would have meant anything to you as a child, did you look on TV and say, I don't see myself? Was that, was that part of your experience? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to beg to differ with you on, I mean, I think you have Asians in pop culture a little bit more, but if we're talking about real visibility where Asians are authentically seen, mm-hmm. I mean, we're still the model minority. Right. It's, just, it's still okay to like, I mean, a, there was someone made a Chinaman joke yesterday and an actual member of Congress. Like, it's okay. It's, Asians are seen as like okay to sort of make fun of because they're seen as, you know, edu- they're higher up on the education and income ladder. But if you actually look at the numbers, especially for Southeast Asians, right. I mean, we uh, we, Vietnamese Americans, Thai Americans are some of the most economically disenfranchised, underinsured people in America. Right. You talk about the undocumented of like lar- the fastest growing uh, population of undocumented in America is Asians, Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. We don't ever talk about that. And Asians, in fact, I think just allow themselves to be bucketed in as like the model minority. So, I mean, I think it's good that you have shows like Fresh Off the Boat. I think it's good that we're more honestly talking about Asian family life. But in far as, as far as being woke to like the reality of like being Asian in America, I don't think we're there yet. And as a kid, did that mean something to you? I mean, you talk about how um, age 12, that's that moment where, where you first feel it. Like I can remember cutting on the, you know, the TV as a kid and saying, you know, I mean, obviously there's the Cosby, we'll get to Cosby by the way, I actually want to ask there was, the, there was the Cosby show. Um, but in general, you know, you, you, it was clear. Uh, yes, I know what you're saying. Yes. I would look at Connie yes. Chung. That's probably why I'm in the news, because I was right. like, that's what Asian women, American, right. like, she's not actually even Asian American, I don't right. think. But right. there were no models for right. the kind of person I wanted to be. There were no Asians popularly that I could sort of, like, look up to as role models. Right, right. So it would have been meaningful. I know you have questions from the audience. I do, and I had more questions myself, but I guess... We can talk, you can throw Cosby in and pretend it's a question from the audience. Yeah, Um, oh yeah, I'll just act like that's on a card. Yeah, you can, just like... (laughs) You'd be like, this one is from (laughs) TNC in the audience. Right, 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 right. right. Tony Crowder. No, seriously, so today, you know, obviously, I'm Alex, you work in, uh, we both work in media. Mm-hmm. There have been a number, you know, of cases uh, across the media with, with, with this Me Too moment. I think, actually, though, Bill Cosby, even though, you know, he's not in journals, was actually the first really, really big one. Um, and he was found guilty uh, today, today on, on three counts. Um, and... Um, I wonder whether you expected it. I wonder what your reaction is. I wonder, as somebody who has worked in the news business, and we talked about this backstage, knowing all that happens, you know, now, yeah. now that I'm, you know, somewhat a little bit more aware of that than I was before. Yeah. Um, I wonder what your reaction is. Well, I think the reckoning is overdue. Mm-hmm. As someone who replaced someone who faced sexual predation and harassment allegations on the circus. You know, I think it's really unfortunate that the catalyst for this moment had to be what it was. Like, oh, we realize that many men in positions of power are scumbags. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should hire women. Like, Mm -hmm. duh. Like, we should have hired women well before we came to some realization that certain men in the media were scumbags. But um, I'm glad for it. And Mm -hmm. I do think it's, I mean, I want to see the change that I want to see generally on issues of race and gender, which is I don't want it to be one woman. I want it to be seven women. Mm -hmm. I want it to be a quorum. Because if you ask anybody, the way change is truly affected is not by having one black person in the boardroom or one woman on the television program. It's by having three of them Mm -hmm. or four of them or five of them. Mm -hmm. And that's how you have enough of a movement to really push for change and enact it. So, I mean, my hope is that this is the beginning. I think it's great that Bill Cosby is facing justice after what he did to countless Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And I think it's unfortunate that they had to wait this long. 61 accusations, I mean. 61. Um, okay, I have more questions about that, but we're going to let you guys... That was a question from the audience anyway. That was a question from the audience. You didn't ask it, you should have asked it. I mean, I'm just, oh, you know you wanted to ask it. <laughs> How do you reconcile maintaining your own identity when it comes to marriage? <laughs> Wasn't my question. That's such a good question. My husband couldn't be here tonight, but I'm sure he'd be chuckling in the audience if mm. he was. Um, I think it's hard, you know? like. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for women to maintain their, first of all, I just became a mom mm. and I'm, uh, you know, and a wife and like hats off to moms out there who don't work. Like it's, you know, it's, it's all good. I think it's hard. Like there is a sense, I think a lot of women feel of loss of identity generally as they 
become partners and mothers. And um, I think, you know, for me, work has been a, a way of maintaining my identity. And I think after writing this book, I feel it's incumbent upon me as a woman and as a person of color and a person who fully, I think, has a more inclusive version of the American narrative in my head to make sure that the media that I engage in, the shows that I do, the stories that I cover is reflective of that. I, I want to be honest in my personal life and also in my professional life. And that's, that's grounding in a way. And that gives me a sort of form of workplace identity, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, one last question that I think uh, is a pretty good one to end on, but I, I will remind you guys that Alex's book uh, is available sale, for sale in the for lobby. For sale in the lobby. I'll be signing them. Face. Please purchase and Alex will sign, <laughs> as people tend to do with these things. Um, but it's Alex signing, so yeah. it means something. You know, it's actually different. Thank you for the sell, my friend. I, that was not very good. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know what the problem is? I don't ever sign it, these things. Well, that's because you know? you're too much of a rock star. No, it so actually is like... not that. It's because I'm kind of an asshole, and so oh and you're much God. nicer than me. And so I can't actually make the pitch the way I should be making the pitch. Right, because you're like, I'd never do it, but yeah. this woman's But Alex is it. so cool and so gracious <laughs> that she's giving of her time. You guys should buy the book. Please buy the book. Okay. <laughs> What is the role of future face when our president wants to build the wall? You talk a little bit about this at the beginning of the book. Yeah, um, the role is like keep making more future faces, you know, and also like, again, this is not our destiny. Mm -hmm. We shape our future every day by living in the present and um, be active. Go vote, go run for office, tell people you know to go vote, go run for office, make babies, have brown babies, have white babies that have like ideas about brown people. <laughs> like, good ideas. Uh, yeah, good ideas, good ideas, good ideas. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Not bad ideas. You know, build, build your life, build your society, be active, try. I, I just, I'm sorry, and this is, I promise this is the last question. I know they're yanking me off stage, but I just have to ask. I mean, like, one of the things that sticks with me, I, I love this book. I, I read it in one day. I, I love this book. But, you know, the thing that sticks with me is the fact that before there was slavery, my face was future face. Yeah. And they just changed the line. They did. You know what I mean? And so, like, the scary thing for me about that is how do we reckon with the fact that like, you very well could be the future. Let's say you very, very well are the future. But the racism could very well remain. It's entirely true, my friend. But you know what? Like, before slavery, you and I wouldn't be sitting on a stage talking about this stuff. Right. And, we, and one of us wouldn't be a best-selling author, and the other one wouldn't be on the national That's news. very clever. And that's very, very real. Clever. <laughs> it's a good note to end on. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.